Good morning. It's great to be back with you. I missed you guys last Sunday morning. I had the privilege of uh, speaking at the uh, close of services we had begun the Thursday night before at Big Island Baptist Church in DeVille with dear brother and there and uh, enjoyed our time. I want to tell you a little funny about myself. Um, I was really tired after last week. It was um, it was a long week. It was just one of those weeks that just kind of went on and on and on and on. And from Thursday night through Sunday morning, uh, we had the revival services there at Big Island Baptist Church. And so after a really long week and uh, a big day Saturday, um, Saturday night getting in late again and not sleeping very good on uh, Saturday night and getting up Sunday morning going out to Big Island, I was sitting on the front row of the uh, church uh, during the service at Big Island, and I was kind of zoning out. Have you ever sat down and you've been real sleepy and you start to zone out? Has that ever happened to you? Like when I'm preaching, you know, it's just you just start kind of zoning out. And, um, and so I was sitting there and I was kind of zoning out and I was getting to that place where your head starts to get ready to fall. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're going to fall and jolt yourself uh, and uh, it's not good when you're driving. Um, and so I was sitting there and I'm starting to do that. And I run a thought through my mind. And here's what the thought said. The thought said, uh, David Gatch, who's the pastor of the church, had was up and he was at the platform and he was making some announcements and um, he was getting ready to introduce me. And I was sitting there and this thought went through my head. And here was the thought. My thought was, I hope that I can stay awake. And listen to this sermon. And then I had this thought that followed it immediately and said, you're preaching the sermon. And so I was that out of it. And so uh, I was just totally, totally fogged. The Lord gave us grace and we had a wonderful time. And by the time I got up, my mind had cleared and the fog had lifted. And so here we are today back together. It's great. So glad for Wes McKay to come and preach here. What a dear brother in the Lord. And he is a jewel and such a great co-laborer in the Lord. And we had a great time Thursday night. Did y'all have a great time Thursday night? We had a great time Thursday night at the Volunteers Banquet. That was just a sweet time of fellowship with our brother Jim Law and our staff together just enjoying this time. So I'm just coming to you today. My heart's full and joyful to share with you the Lord's word. And I really love you. And it's a joy to have this opportunity. Last uh, two weeks ago, I told you about the teaching that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount and this call to shine and how we are salt and light. And one of those places that we are most clearly salt and light is in our families, in our marital relationships. And so we talked about how when Jesus gave his teaching in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19 about the seriousness of marriage, that the disciples' response to Jesus was, well, if marriage is this serious, if it's this big of a deal and this difficult, then uh, perhaps people shouldn't get married. And Jesus uh, said, no, that is not so. That is only a gift for a particular group of people who are called to singleness. And therefore, he was uh, clarifying that marriage, though difficult and challenging, is a glorious and great thing given to us by God the Father from the very beginning. This joyful union of man and woman in this bond called a covenant. And so I said, if it's that serious, what can we do to start a good marriage? And I gave us three things. Let's run through them real quick. 
that were important starting places for marriage, important groundwork for us to know as we enter into this beautiful thing called marriage. First, I share with you that marriage is a legal covenant between a man and a woman for life. And we saw how that beautiful covenant is demonstrated in Genesis 15. In God's covenant with Abraham, where they took these animals, they cut them in half, they set them apart, and God passed through between them, making the statement saying, I am committed to this covenant up to and including my own death to honor this vow that I'm making. And that all covenant language in the Old Testament is couched in that idea that a covenant is something that exists all the way up until the death of those who make the covenant. And we saw the gospel of Jesus as God showing him honoring that covenant with Abraham up in including up to and including his own death and that Jesus brings that covenant to us in its completion on the cross. And then we spoke about the second thing. Marriage is a loving union where two lives are woven into one. And we saw in the picture how there's this weave, these horizontal uh, fibers and these vertical fibers coming together alternately supporting and covering each other in woven into oneness as one fabric no longer able to be separated in the way that they were before. And then we learned finally that marriage is a living portrait of Jesus Christ and the church. And we um, had a picture last week, but I want to kind of uh, give you a picture here. This is a mosaic picture of an old picture of Jesus. Now, you guys and gals, you know, you know we don't have an actual picture of Jesus um, other than the autographed ones that Steve's been selling to the youth. Um, but uh, this, this is a likeness that people like of Jesus, and it's been there through the years. And it's interesting because if you'll go one more slide for me, Emily, um, if you zoom in, now you see just the eye. Zoom, go back, uh, Emily. Okay, we're going to zoom in just on the eye. Go forward again. Okay, can you see the eye? But can you also see that that is a composite of a lot of little pictures? Now, here's what is happening in marriage. Back up one for me, Emily, if you would. Um, marriage is a mosaic of a thousand or a hundred thousand or a million acts between a husband and a wife that when joined together into one picture, give a picture of Christ and His church. Into every home, a picture through a legal covenant so that the gospel trust is developed in the home. Into every family, a loving union so that gospel feelings of love and security are fostered. Into every neighborhood, a living portrait so the gospel itself is seen by the neighbors looking at our homes. And so what's happening in Marriage is that marriage is a picture for the family, for the children, for the neighbors, the neighborhood and the world to see through which they interpret Christ. And many of the messages are subliminal messages. How many of you remember subliminal messages in movies? Does anybody remember those? Those of you who are old enough to remember going to the drive-in or going to the movie theater before subliminal messages were outlawed, you get a new kind of them now, but subliminal messages used to be at a a drive-in or at the movie, 
What they would do is they would insert a frame of a cheeseburger or insert a frame of fries or insert a frame of cold drinks or insert a frame of popcorn in the movie. So as the movie was going, that that image would actually enter your mind subliminally. You wouldn't really know exactly what you'd seen. But all of a sudden you would say, you want some popcorn? Because that popcorn had been accepted by your mind and viewed subliminally. And then you'd look around and say, y'all want to go get a Coke? And they would do this. And then finally it was outlawed. Now, today they have what's called product placement in movies. And so you're watching a movie and all over the movie, there's different products that are just out there. And it's much more up in your face. But here's what's happening. When husbands and wives are loving each other in gospel ways, they're painting a portrait that is like this, very clear, but often subliminally to the people around. They're going, you know, there's something there. I haven't quite understood what's there, but there's something there in their relationship that's teaching me something. There's something in how they treat each other. There's something in how they love each other. There's something in how they trust each other. There's something in how they interact with each other that reminds me or teaches me something. I haven't got my finger on it yet, but that's it. But whatever it is, I want it. I want it. And subliminally, marriage is creating a hunger for the gospel. And God has designed it that way. And we'll see that fleshed out in the passage in Ephesians. So let's go there. Ephesians chapter five. As we begin, um, I want to make a book recommendation to you. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Timothy Keller. It ought to be on every family's uh, shelf. It's really good. This book has caused Sherry and I have been married for 28 years. We're about to hit 29. It has caused Sherry and I to ask some brand new, fresh questions about our marriage and about each other that are really challenging yet wonderfully refreshing. And so I, I want to encourage you to lay your hands on this. It's a tremendous book. You can get it on Amazon for about 12 bucks, I think. And uh, it's, it's really been helpful. And so I'm going to make some reference to it here in just a moment. Paul, as he teaches through the book of Ephesians and the passage on marriage, starts with an incredible statement. Join me there in 5.18 and listen to his words. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But keep on being filled with the Spirit. So number one, Paul assumes a miraculous power in his teaching on marriage. When Paul teaches about marriage, he is assuming that he is speaking to people who have been born again by the Spirit of God. There was a vacuum cleaner salesman back in the old days when vacuum cleaner salesmen went house to house and made house calls and went from one place to the next to the next to the next. And this one particular vacuum cleaner salesman had a pretty good gimmick going. And uh, so uh, with this gimmick, he was moving a lot of vacuum cleaners and he was making a lot of sales. And so he showed up at this farmhouse door. He knocked on the door. A simply dressed uh, farm wife comes to the door, opens the door, and before she could say a word or he could say a word, he steps into the door and onto her floor he throws a bag of dirt. 
And he says, ma'am, I'm here from the, and he said the name of the vacuum company. And he said, and I'm here to convince you of how wonderful this vacuum cleaner is. In fact, this vacuum cleaner is so good that if it does not pick up every piece of dirt off of your floor, I will eat it with a spoon. She put her hands on her hip and said, well, honey, you better get a spoon because we don't have no power. Now, he was stepping into that house with an assumption that there was a power there that was beyond his own abilities. And so he steps in thinking that that power was there when it wasn't. The Apostle Paul is stepping into your life and making these statements, assuming a power that is, as we put up here, miraculous. It's supernatural. It's bigger than, stronger than, your own abilities. Because what Paul is going to ask of marriage, what Christ is going to ask of marriage through Paul, is impossible. Apart from a divine, supernatural power that enables us to do things that we cannot of our own accord do. Now, Paul's word that he uses here, let's go to the next frame. Paul's word that he uses here is not a term for a cup of water being filled so that what we're talking about is an amount or a content. The term that he's using is likely a sailing term that the Ephesian people would have known. And that sailing term is a term that has to do with sails, as you can see that these sails are, filled with the wind. Now, what happens is, is that the sailors take these sails and they open them and they orient them so that the maximum force of the wind is influencing the fabric of the sails so that the boat is driven with a power that is not its own to go through waters that are too rough, too fierce, to go against currents that are too strong. And so the power that Paul is talking about is a believer yielding his or herself to Christ by the Spirit so that the Spirit has the greatest amount of influence on the fabric of our lives. This is very important. Because what God is asking of us in marriage is to do that which we cannot do by rowing. It's to do that which we cannot do by drifting. It's to do that which we cannot do by flowing with the current. It is to be led in a direction that is sometimes contrary to all conditions around us. And my brothers and sisters, it is sometimes contrary to our own feelings. I have found that often... The work of God's Spirit is contrary to how I feel. And that it is at the times when God's Spirit's direction and my flesh's desire are in most contrast to each other that I tend to fold my sails and drift. 
Because I do not like where the Spirit is compelling me to go. I do not like where the Spirit is pushing me. I do not like where He is taking me. I do not like where He is placing me. And so what I will do is I will roll up my little sails and I will drift or I will row or I will flow with the current instead of going where God calls me. Just like Jonah, when God called him to go to Nineveh, he sought to go the other way. And so... When Paul talks about marriage, he's saying this. The ability to sustain this covenant, to weave this fabric and to paint this picture is not because of your sweet, warm feelings of love for each other. It is because of a gospel commitment to Christ and a filling with the Holy Spirit that empowers the ship of your life to go against the flow, to go against the flesh, and to go against the fear. So that He will take you where He wants you to be. So that's how Paul starts it, and that's why verse 18 is so important to what's coming about marriage. He's saying, keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's not one puff of wind that pushes the boat. It's the, the sails always being open and willing and yielded to receive the force of the wind compelling and propelling the ship. Now what happens is, is Tim Keller writes about this in his book. And I think this is really important because What's being spoken of here is saved people. Only saved people are filled with God's Spirit. Only saved people can even yield themselves to His influence. Only saved people can even want to go where God wants them to go, even in their most unwilling moments. Here's what Tim Keller says about it. First, the picture of marriage given in Ephesians is not of two needy people, unsure of their own value and purpose, finding their significance and meaning in one another's arms. If you add two vacuums to each other, you only get a bigger and stronger vacuum and a giant sucking sound. Rather, Paul assumes that each spouse has already settled the big questions of life, why they were made by God and who they are in Christ. No one lives a life of continual joy in God, of course. It is not automatic and constant. If that were the case, Paul would not have had to start verse 18 with an imperative, exhorting them literally to go on being filled with the Spirit. So the beginning is to have answered the big questions. Who made me? Why am I here? And how do I get right with God? In other words, you must be born again. You must be saved in order to be a person filled with the Spirit, compelled by the Spirit, and willing to go with the Spirit. Until that salvation comes, it's an impossible thing. The second thing that Paul points us to today, number two, Paul asserts a mutual posture in his teaching. On marriage. Look in verse 22. Long before we get into gender roles in the book of Ephesians, we get a command of a mutual posture. Verse 22 Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Whoa! 
back up a verse. What does it say? Verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The posture that two people are to come together in marriage and two people are to meet together in church, the posture that all believers are to have toward one another is a posture of mutual submission. It looks like this. If you remember, when we started the presentation of Shine, we talked about the first requisite of being a Christian is blessed are the poor in spirit. Until we can come in a humble posture towards God to be filled with His Spirit and towards each other to be united by the Spirit, pride will always infect our relationships. In fact, until the gospel is clear in us, we cannot relate rightly to other people. You see, there is this incredible, vast cavern in the soul of man that is an infinite-sized hole and can only be filled with something of infinite size. When that is not filled with something of infinite size, we start trying to pack it with things of finite size that can never fill it. And what happens is, is we try to pack into their people and possessions and pleasures to try to make us feel whole. When the gospel has made us whole, then we no longer have to use people to make us happy. We are free to relate to people because God makes us happy in Christ. If in my marriage I am dependent upon Sherry for my happiness, then what I'm doing is I'm asking her to fill a hole the size of God. And I will always be dissatisfied with Sherry. Nothing that she could do. No act that is physical, mental, emotional, or relational could ever adequately quench the thirst in my soul for the infinite. And the result would be that I would growingly become embittered with Sherry over the 28 years that we've been married. But when my heart is filled with God and the gospel, what happens is then I can rightly relate to Sherry because I need her at the appropriate level. I need her at the wife level, not the God level. I need her at the friend level, not the Savior level. I need her at the co-laborer level, not the die for me and reconcile me to God level. And so the result is, when the gospel is right, I am humble of posture in receiving the gospel. And I am humble in posture at living the gospel. And so then Sherry and I come to each other with a mutual posture. That of mutual submission to each other in Christ.
It has nothing to do with gender roles. It has to do with our spiritual disposition where we come together mutually humbled in Christ. This kills our pride. There is no path to holiness that does not travel through submission. Please hear that. There is no path to holiness that does not travel through submission. Finally, that I want to share with you today in the second part of four sermons that I will do totally is that Paul anticipates a mutual pursuit in his teaching on marriage. Something is going on here that seems to lie under the surface of Ephesians 5, and I'm afraid it doesn't boil up rightly without us kind of digging around and pulling it out. It says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and blameless. So there's this power, the Holy Spirit. There's this posture, humility. But there's this pursuit that is mutual also. And it is the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of sanctification. Both the husband and wife should live in light of the day when they will present themselves before God and give an account for their lives and for their marriage. It appears here that God is giving the husband a particular role in anticipation of a particular moment. You guys, gals, y'all know the particular moment, you know, when that door opens and the bride walks in, where's everybody turned to in a wedding? All eyes on the bride, because this is the moment of her presentation. All eyes on the bride. This is the moment everybody looks at her. The last thing most brides do before they come out is they look in the mirror. That's why we've got a big mirror where they get dressed. Why? Because there's a moment of presentation. Paul seems to be hinting to the fact that in marriage, there is some sense that there is a day when a husband who has sought holiness and sanctification presents his wife for whom he has sought holiness and sanctification to Jesus himself And in a sense, says something like this. This is what I did with her while you lent her to me. This is what I did with her while she was in my care. This is the condition in which I return her to you. Now, unfortunately, men... The way that it's put here is that the man is actually the dress attendant. 
Now, in weddings today, we don't have that. The man usually doesn't see the bride until the dress attendants have taken care of her. They've helped get the gown on her. They've checked it for spots and stains, and they've made sure she's good to go and got her to the door. But that's not how it's presented here. Notice what it says here in verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Here's the husband's model is Christ. Having no spot or wrinkle. That means the husband is busy keeping spots off the dress and ironing out the wrinkles on the dress. That is, this appearance that she has of holiness and righteousness and sanctification. And it looks kind of like this. The next frame. Some husbands have handled their wives with dirty hands. And rather than sanctifying them for the day of marriage, the wife's condition has not been improved by exposure, guys, to us. But because we did not seek clean hands and a pure heart, when we handled her dress, we soiled her life. And rather than contributing to her holiness by the influence of washing her with the water of the word, she has fought an uphill battle to keep herself clean, guys, from our hands. This is a serious matter. The Apostle Paul is laying on the husbands a responsibility for the preparation of the wife's appearance before Christ by saying that the man is spot removing and ironing and taking care of any such thing. He says it there, any such thing. That means anything that would detract from the holy beauty of her appearance in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so what has happened in this picture is the man's dirty hands have soiled the wife's dress. Guys, when we touch our wives physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, is it to iron the wrinkles and take any spots out? Or do we leave handprints everywhere we touch her that are dirty? But God does not leave the responsibility just on the husband. If he is to be sacrificial in the pursuit of sanctification, she is to be submissive in the pursuit of sanctification. The next picture shows us a little bit different where the woman just willfully dives in to that which is unholy. Here, when it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, he is talking about a willingness to pursue holiness together in a submissive relationship. Not profaning, not defiling her own self by her deeds, but keeping attentive to the holiness, to the sanctification, to the appearance that she wants to have when the doors of heaven open and Christ receives her home. And so He gives 
the challenge to us mutually. And so, this call to marriage as a covenant, legally binding, morally binding, ethically binding, is this weaving of our lives together, mutually supporting and covering as this picture of Christ that people see in our home, in our family, in our marriages, in our neighborhoods. It has to be powered by the Spirit. It has to be postured by humility. And it has to pursue above all things the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Would you bow with me? Starting at the beginning, I must ask you a question. Would you describe yourself as that ship in the picture with the sails fully open, with the sails fully oriented, with the sails fully filled to their capacity so that the most impact of the Spirit's power is touching the most fabric of the believer's life, would you describe yourself as that ship being pushed this moment by the power of God's Spirit? And if not, I think that there's one of two problems. One, you're not saved, so you have no sails, and your soul is adrift in a sea. And if your life is required of you today, you will not go to heaven. You will be doomed. Your sin will be present before you forever. God will cast you into the outer darkness. And so I'm inviting you this morning to come to Christ and receive sails for your ship that you may be filled with His Spirit and compelled to be what God wants you to be. The second reason you might not be filled with the Spirit is that you are a believer, you've got sails, but you have willfully rolled those sails up so that the Spirit no longer carries you. And you are adrift in the sea of selfishness. And you're miserable. You know you're not going where God wants you to go. You've been rowing! And you're getting nowhere. You know you're not going where God wants you to go. You've been flowing. In fact, you're getting worse, not better. And so I'm inviting you this morning to confess your sin to God and to raise your sails and to say, Jesus, I yield all to Jesus. I surrender. All to Him I freely give. Would you pray that this morning? Please stand and respond as God urges you in your heart.